You should have your Bibles open to 1 Thessalonians. We're going to begin today our journey through the first epistle that the Apostle Paul ever wrote. It is chronologically the first epistle he ever wrote, which is, uh, which is interesting to me because I think it exposes for him so much of his theological conviction because uh, the, the church at large had, had uh, a good understanding of the gospel. He had been preaching and, and, and planting these churches, and so they got the gospel uh, pretty well understood. And so what he writes about then is stuff that he feels like needs some adjustment, some course correction, in case uh, they started to, to stray away from proper understanding, or if new believers had crept into the, the church and so they didn't get taught everything. And so I think everybody got the, the message of the cross down on the, uh, on the forgiveness of sins, uh, on, the, on the payment of, of uh, uh, by Jesus Christ on the cross for our wrongdoing and to fix our relationship with the Lord. I think all of that he feels like is in place for the Thessalonians. But then he starts to talk about some other stuff. Now, when I ask people, what is your favorite uh, book of the Bible? I've never heard anyone say 1 Thessalonians, and I certainly haven't heard them say 2 Thessalonians. The Thessalonian letters uh, are, are just kind of, uh, they're in there, but it's nobody's favorite letter, and I think I'm the only one that loves 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, but that's because uh, I like the stuff that nobody else cares about. I, I get interested on, in the eschatology of it and stuff, right? So I like theology of the end times. I always think that we, we talk about running the race, but I always wanna know where the finish line is. And, uh, and that's a big deal to me. So when I talk to people about First Thessalonians, you know, they say, what, what are you gonna preach on next? I say, I'm gonna talk through the Thessalonian letters. I just kinda get this blank stare like, oh, cool. That sounds like Bible to me. Um, but I don't, I don't get like a, a real excited response. Here's what's gonna happen, okay? I'm gonna take you through uh, these letters, but I, I wanted to lay out for you the beauty of the eschatology, the, 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 the glamor and the, and the power of what God reveals about the end times. Because these two letters, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, is geared so much toward having a proper understanding, to ratchet up your understanding of how everything's gonna end so that you know how to live today. If you were to know, uh, before you watched a sports game, if you were to know the ending, you would watch the sports game with a much different kind of posture in your heart, right? You wouldn't be worried about the outcome. You wouldn't, be, uh, you wouldn't be so thrown off when you see your team that you're rooting for set back a little bit if you know that in the end they're gonna win. The Thessalonian letters are written to bring the people of God to a point of assurance so that they're not so thrown off by the, the ongoings of life. Now, if you were to read the, uh, the book of Acts, chapter 17, uh, you'd find how uh, the apostle Paul and two of his buddies, Silas or Silvanus, uh, it kind of goes by both names, Silas or Silvanus, uh, Paul and his buddy Silas and Silvanus, and then Timothy will kind of be involved also. But uh, Paul and Silas, they spent three weeks evangelizing in Thessalonica's synagogue. Thessalonica is the city, the Thessalonians are the people of Thessalonica, okay? So I'm gonna put up uh, Acts 17 for you real fast, and it says in verse one, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar. Now let's stop there for a second, okay? Here's what's going on. The Apostle Paul comes into Thessalonica, and as his custom, he always goes into the Jewish synagogues, right? The Jewish synagogue is just, that's, that's their place of worship. There was one temple 
That's in Jerusalem. That's where all the sacrifices are made, burnt offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings. That's all made at the temple in Jerusalem during the pilgrimage feasts three times a year. But on your weekly basis, when you, uh, when you want to worship on, at, uh, on Sabbath, you would go to your local synagogue, and that's where you would hear the word, and that's where you would pray and meet together and fellowship with other people of your faith. That's a synagogue. And so Paul would go into the synagogue and he would speak to the Jews first because the Jews had a basis of understanding starting with the Old Testament. And Paul would say, everything that you've been waiting for about the Messiah, I know who he is and I'm gonna tell it to you. His name is Jesus. And he would reason with them, meaning that the faith is something that you can reason with. You can explain it to them. You can show through the Old Testament that Jesus is the Christ and his life fulfilled all that the, uh, that the scriptures beforehand had foretold. So he reasons with them, and then a bunch of Jews join his movement. And uh, it's, a, it's a group of Jews that join his movement, and then a bunch of Greeks, Gentiles, non-Jewish people, they join the movement. And uh, many of the, the Greek leading women are, are joining the movement. So he has a, a big, uh, big group of people that are coming in in Thessalonica, and he's doing this for three weeks on, this, on the Sabbaths, and then however much time after that. Maybe there's a little bit more time, but it, he spends three weeks in, uh, on the Sabbaths, and the Jews are persuaded, and then some Greeks start to come in, and he's like working there as a tent maker, and he's, he's taking care of this church. He's pastoring this church. It grows for a time under his, his leadership, and then his buddy Timothy joins him. So it's now Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Whenever Jews became Christians, other Jews who didn't become Christians, they saw that as defecting from the covenant faith of Israel. And so it always garnered a lot of opposition from the Jews that were offended saying, how can you go into that, that Christian sect of religion? How could you go into that? How could you betray us? How could you proclaim that the peasant, the carpenter's son, Jesus, who walked around homeless, worked on the Sabbath, touched unclean people, spoke with Gentiles, how could you say that he's the chosen one of Israel? He's the holy one of Israel. He's the the savior of the world. How could you say that? And so whenever, the, uh, whenever Jewish people became Christians, it garnered a lot of opposition from other Jews, and this led to rioting mobs that persecuted the, ch- the church. And so Paul and, Silvanus, as they're, uh, Paul and Silas, as they're trying to take care of this church, uh, the opposition grows so much that they eventually get sent away, and they go off to Berea, where they plant the Berean church. Well, that's exactly uh, how it went, and, and Paul and Silas have been gone for three months, and Timothy as well. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they're, they're gone for three months. And so Paul is very concerned about the Thessalonian church because he's like, I barely got to be there. I didn't get to do much. And so he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica because it's been a season, and he's like, go and check on them and find out what's going on. Bring me back a report. Let me know how that church is doing. Did they derail? Did they fall apart? Did they disband? Are they afraid of the persecution? What's happening over there? So he sends Timothy out to Thessalonica. He's worried because it's such a young church and he's wondering if it fell apart. Timothy goes and then he, he talks to the Thessalonian church, writes a report and he brings it back and he meets the apostle Paul who at that time is in Corinth. And in Corinth, he tells him how the Thessalonian church is doing. And he says, Paul, the Thessalonian church. And Paul says, what is it? And Timothy says, it's thriving. This church is exploding. The power of the Holy Spirit is here. And the apostle Paul is overjoyed at the news of the Thessalonian church. And so he almost immediately writes 1 Thessalonians. This letter is an outpouring of his joy at the report that he got from Timothy. He hears that uh, Timothy say that this church is on fire. It's, uh, it, it's got so much power, so much, so much movement in its faith. We were only there for a short time, but there's something incredible going on here. And so Paul says, I, I got to write to them. And so he starts in chapter one, verse one, and he says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. It's a very standard greeting. He's setting it up. Now, what we're going to see here is going to be arguably 
the Apostle Paul's most positive regard for a church out of all the letters that he's written. Now, if you, if you watch the letters he's written, like, you know, to the Romans, to the Corinthians, uh, to the Ephesians, to the Philippians, to the Colossians, he always has a, a commendation for them, he always, some kind of an affirmation. He says, I thank God whenever I think of you. And he's got like a paragraph where he says nice things to kind of everyone that he writes to except the Galatians because they were whack. So he talks to every church and he's like, I thank God, I love hearing about your church and stuff and I'm so glad that the gospel is, is moving in your midst. He does that, but when he does this with the Thessalonians, it's not a paragraph, it's three full chapters. Three full chapters where he just goes, this is incredible. I can't believe what I'm hearing. No church gets as lengthy of an affirmation by the Apostle Paul as Thessalonica. The Thessalonian church is, as it seems, a very healthy church, an extraordinary church. And Paul tells us why. And it really comes down to two major things. Good leaders, good members. Good leaders and good members. And that's exactly what we're going to look at in these first three chapters, the full three chapters, and we're gonna cover it all today. Now this, this letter is only five chapters long, and we're gonna take three of them right now. These three chapters are, uh, are, are the Apostle Paul just, just going on about how much he's so impressed by the report he hears about this church. It's a great church, it has good leaders, it has good members, uh, it's an exemplary place to be if you wanna grow in the faith. So, if you're taking notes, all you gotta do is keep two lists going, okay? We're gonna kinda bounce back and forth. We're gonna talk about leaders, then members, then leaders, then members, then leaders, then members, and then a conclusion. But if you just, if you just write two lists, qualities that make a good leader, and then qualities that make a good member, then that should be enough for you. And this is for us to, uh, to then just kinda track with the Apostle Paul of what makes a church so good. And then you get to, you get to do that with this church, our church, which has been around for, we, we just passed our two-year mark. And you get to ask the question, is this a good church? Do we have good leaders? Do we have good members? According to what the Apostle Paul is using in his description. Now, I'm sure that he doesn't cover everything. He doesn't talk about everything that could make a church good, but he, he nails some really, really important points, right? And if you're, if you're a leader here, then you certainly need to check your heart with the list of leaders. And then if you're a member here, you certainly need to check your heart with the, uh, the list for members. If you're a visitor here and you haven't actually committed to membership, then this is a good time for you to go, is this a church where I want to commit to membership? Does it have good leaders? Does it have good members? Is this a good church? Okay? All right, let's start with chapter one, uh, starting in verse two to talk about leaders. And then at verse six, we'll switch gears, talk about members, and we'll go back and forth like that, okay? Starting with leaders in uh, verse two, it says, we, and that's Paul, Silas, and Timothy, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Now, Paul is talking about himself and Sylvanus or Silas and Timothy. He's talking about the three of them and he's like, okay, we know we did some good work in your midst. We know it because of how you're turning out. So he is kind of patting himself on the back, but it's true. He did good work, okay? Uh, and so quality number one about good leaders is that good leaders are constantly praying for the church. And you can see that here. He says, look, we're, we're constantly mentioning you in our prayers. We give thanks to God always for all of you. That's the way he says it. And if you notice what he prays about specifically, he talks about the work of faith the labor of love, the steadfastness of hope that he sees in the Thessalonians, right? It's not always just prayer requests, help this person through this struggle, help this person overcome this sin. It's not just prayer requests. He's always giving thanks. 
and he sees something really good going on. We can get into uh, to what it means to you know, talk about the work of faith, the labor of love, the steadfastness of hope. You can turn those into their own separate sermons if you want, but if you just look at what he's doing, he doesn't dwell on the problems of the church. He sees the direction it's going in. Because everybody starts off positionally somewhere on the spectrum of sin, right? How bad you are, or you're, maybe you're worse than someone else, and everyone starts off at a certain position, but he's not so concerned about position. You always hear me say that perfection is the standard, but direction is the key. And this is where the Apostle Paul and Silas and Timothy, where uh, those three leaders, they, they understand that the church will always have problems, and there are people that come in with problems, and new believers come in, they bring in problems, but what direction are we moving in? And what he sees is a work of faith, the labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope that he sees springing up in these people, and that's sanctifying them. It's making them grow spiritually. The church has problems. Even the Thessalonian church has problems, which he's gonna talk about when we get to chapter four. But for now, he's just saying, I I see the direction you're going in. I see the growth of your faith, your love, your hope, and it's amazing. A second thing that you see about good leaders is in verse five where it says that the leaders deliver the gospel through their words, but also through their lives, right? He says in verse five, the gospel came to you not only in word, but also in the power and, uh, in, in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. What that means is they didn't just talk about the Bible. They put it on display by the way that they lived. They were examples of what it looks like to follow Jesus, now, it's not the kind of examples that you have to fake where you hide all the bad stuff and you only show the church your good stuff. It's not like that. I grew up in churches where, where leaders weren't allowed to confess to, their, to their, uh, the, you know, their subordinates because then it would, it would make them stumble. It'll you know, make you look bad. They won't believe the gospel then. And so they were leading us by deceitfulness. They were leading us with hypocrisy, you know, there was, there was sin in their lives, they weren't confessing it, they weren't asking for prayer, so they never modeled for us repentance. That is not what the Apostle Paul is telling good leaders to do, that when, when they came, they showed a life that's being transformed by the Holy Spirit, which includes confession, repentance, accountability, prayer, all of that kind of stuff. It comes with power in the Holy Spirit, with conviction, a good test of a church's leadership is just to go like, is, is that what I want my kids to look like? Look at the leaders of the church and say, do I want my kid to turn out like these leaders in terms of their character and faith? And then of course, if you don't have kids or if you don't plan to have kids or if kids don't really like, you know, make it into your mind, then do you wish to be like these leaders in terms of character? and faith, right? Is, is this someone that you want to, to be like? Where they, they, uh, they the, these are, are leaders who prove on the, uh, to the church that they live by what they preach, that their faith is not just something in their head, it's not just a bunch of theology that they spout and then they lead people into sin, it's not that. It means that there's, there's something going on inside that's transforming them, it's making them confront every wayward part of their soul. And they do that with you, right in view. And they say, I need to slay this on the altar. I need the power of the Savior to come and redeem me every day. Let's look at the members. Verse 6. He says, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now here you get uh, some really cool commendations about the members of the Thessalonian church. Verses six and seven talk about how the members imitate their leaders and the members imitate Jesus. 
right? And by doing that, see, because Jesus is the example for everyone. And then the leaders of the church are supposed to imitate Jesus so that they're examples for everyone. Now the members are imitating the leaders who are imitating Jesus, and so the members here become examples for everyone. Do you see how that works? Right, everybody is imitating someone who's imitating Jesus. It's a daisy chains down like that, and so everyone becomes an example to the people around. And that's a summary statement that starts to encompass everything else in the paragraph. What did the members imitate exactly from their leaders? They're imitating their leaders. What exactly did they imitate? Well, first they received the word even during much affliction and with great joy. That's a good member, right? A good member receives the word even during much affliction with great joy. There needs to be an energy that comes from hearing God's word, a response of trust and praise and worship at the word of God. You know, people go to church because they're looking for a community. They go, or they go to church because they like the music. They go to church because it's moral training or something like that. But a good member goes to church because there's something in the, in the word of God. There's an energy to it. Where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Right? To, uh, to know that this is where the people of God come together in corporate worship and are energized by this. It's not this idea that you just stay home and, and uh, read the Bible by yourself. You're this lone Christian apart from the body, but you come and there's an energy to the word. There's an energy that's, that's shared among the other members of Christ. And it's, it, uh, it's not just the, the fun sermons that, that good members like. It's the sermons that, that even get us in trouble. It doesn't take much to, uh, to get us in trouble. If you, if you preach the word, it doesn't take much to get you in trouble, right? There, there are plenty of, of uh, moments where you can preach a sermon and receive much affliction today. Preach on gender identity. Preach on gender roles. Preach on sexuality. Preach on divorce and marriage. Preach on sin and hell. Preach that Jesus is the only way the only means of salvation. Just preach the gospel and watch what happens. It cuts a room in half, polarizes everybody. These days, if you just say you're a Christian, there are people who respond with, with uh, intense hatred. It's not hard to, to uh, encounter affliction as a Christian. Now, when you hear the word of God, when you hear the gospel, when you hear the, the parts that, that just uh, confront and upset the world, there's always that tug inside, the response that you gotta decide between, right? One is to say, I agree with the world and I think that the church needs to, to get with the times and update to this culture because my culture is supreme out of all the timeline of history. There's this, this uh, ethno, ethnocentrism that kind of kicks in and says that my culture dictates what God should or shouldn't say. Or you stand back and say, the Lord is the judge of all the earth. Every culture is judged by him. He is the determiner of what's right and wrong. The knowledge of good and evil belongs to him and him alone. And so a good member will know that when, when he hears the word, there's a, a sense of joy, even if it brings affliction. There's joy and gladness knowing knowing that this is the word of God, this is the peace of God, it's the instruction of God, it's the leading from God to us. And so there's a joy even when we hear the word and we are corrected. We don't get defensive, we don't get, we don't get all you know, puffed up and, and, uh, and angry and we don't respond with, with retaliation. When, when the word of God comes to confront us, there's a gladness to be corrected, to be set straight. There's no moaning and groaning about how much you don't like it. There's no defense of the pride. There's just a, a sense to, to say, this is the word of the Lord. And I receive correction. I embrace it. In verse eight, you find another aspect of, of good members, which is that uh, they evangelized. That's kind of the easy way to say it. They, they evangelize. They spread the word. Right? Uh, it says that the, uh, the word sounded forth from them. Verse 8. Uh, I'll read it. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth 
from you. And that's like a cool word. It, it's uh, it's the, the ringing of a bell, that, you know, that gonging of a bell. That, the word sounded forth. It's a powerful verb he uses to say that like, it, it's not just like, oh, people are talking about you. He's saying like, it's booming, it's out there. It's resounding. The description captures a certain excitement, a fervor, a vigor, a power. They didn't, the, the Thessalonian church didn't just tell people in like some kind of shy, scared, awkward way, like, you know, hey, Jesus. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't this kind of like timid way. They went out and they said, have you heard about the Messiah? Have you heard? Have you figured out what you're missing in your life? Something sounded forth. They knew they had the best news ever. And, and when someone knows that they have good news, everyone is an expert at telling people about the things that they love. Everyone's an expert at it. The way that you talk about a movie that you like, or a TV show or a drama, a song, a type of music, sports, whatever type of game, right? When, you, when you're excited about something, when something has just lit up inside you and there's a, a passion or a conviction, it's not hard to talk about it and to say what's so good about it. The Thessalonians were excited about Jesus. You don't need to go to training seminars on how to tell people about Jesus. You just tell them. I mean, the seminars might help you just to, you know, like be a clear communicator or something, but you're already at a head start if it's something that you care about. More than telling your friends about how much you, you, you like uh, you know, sports or music or whatever, telling them about Jesus should be the resonant conviction inside your heart. And it's like, honestly, to say, tell people about Jesus, that by itself, in and of itself, is gonna sound stupid to anyone who does not get what we're doing here. But to those that do, it makes perfect sense. And it's not just makes perfect sense, something lights up inside. Verse nine gives you another aspect of, of, of a good member. It says that the members turned from idols to serve God. The members turned from idols to serve God. Now this is proof that the gospel transforms believers, right? This is what you need to see. If you don't see transformed lives, get out of there, right? If you're at a church where the membership is not transformed, is not being transformed, get out of there. If you don't see a direction in the membership where they are advancing toward holiness and moving away from the life they used to live, if you don't see that, get out of there, right? You, uh, you, you always have to see a movement, a growth, that someone today is not the same person they were two years ago. When you turn from the idols that you used to serve, it means that you stop living the way that you used to. There's a transformation taking place. Now, this is very much a timeline for 100% of the Christian body. Every single Christian moves in this way, right? It, and it goes past, present, future. Past, they turn away from the idols that they used to worship. The idols that they used to pursue, right? That's the past. They turned away from those, and that's, that's all in the history of their lives. Present would be they serve the living and true God. They serve the living and true God. It says you, uh, you turned away from idols to serve the living and true God. That's what goes on in the present. That's what you need to see. That's why every member at, at Savior Community Church serves. Because there's, a, there's an outpouring of the Spirit. Everything gets set straight. That's when, uh, that's when you, you understand that it's God who you live for. That's where your life reorients. And piece by piece, direction takes place. And over time, you start to get it. You start to break the old habits and you start to adopt a whole new kind of way of living. That's the timeline. The idols were in the past. Now, in the present, you're serving the true and living God. And then in the future, you await the return of Jesus. And that's what it says in verse 10. It says that the members wait for the Son from heaven, which is Jesus. 
right? The members wait for the Son from heaven. Now, that's just an, an easy way of saying you wait for the, uh, the, the return of Jesus Christ, the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's what you wait for, right? That's where we put all of our hope. Because when Jesus returns, that means that sin is coming to an end. Now, it's not an instantaneous thing. He has some events that he's going to take care of at that time. But when he returns, we know that, that like all of history is now culminating to its climax and to its end. And that's where we wait for true reward. The return of Jesus Christ is everything to the people of God. If your career is your everything, or if your, uh, your future relationship is your everything, you've missed it. The return of Jesus Christ is everything to the people of God. That's when everything gets figured out. That's when, when all the evil in the world gets dealt with. Right? That's when, when it's all set straight. It's Jesus that returns, sin comes to an end. Even if there's affliction and persecution from the world, today we know that there's no condemnation from God for a church, for a good church, for, for the church that actually believes in him. Because Christ delivers us from the wrath to come. That's, uh, I want you to key in on that, okay? Just look at verse 10. Uh, Wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. He delivers us from the wrath to come, and instead of condemnation then, instead of wrath, he leads us into future glory. Right? That, that's going to start with a whole bunch of different events that we will talk about in the coming weeks. It'll be rapture, tribulation, the, the second coming of Jesus, Armageddon, the millennial kingdom, the great white throne of judgment, and then the new heavens, new earth. So there's a sequence of events that will take place, and we'll, we will cover it. Uh, we'll get more into that when we're like partway through chapter 4. But for now, we've turned away from the sinfulness of our past. We serve God in the present, and we eagerly await for Jesus to return in the future. Because he delivers us from the wrath to come. And I want you to remember that line. He, he delivers us from the wrath to come. Remember it for a little bit later to, uh, for, in this sermon, and then also for a few weeks from now, okay? Now let's talk about leaders in chapter two, verses one through 12. This is what it says. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with the pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, not uh, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. Verse nine, for you remember brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. All right, let's let's talk about this. This is a lot of stuff to unpack here about leadership. Good leaders are willing to suffer for the gospel. And that's what verse two kind of lays out for you, right? That they've been suffered and uh, and shamefully treated and stuff. And they do this because they're they're preaching the gospel. That's, That's just an occupational hazard. If, if you preach the gospel, people will hate you. The world will hate you, and even people in the church oftentimes will hate you because nobody likes, uh, n- nobody likes hearing that they're wrong, and hopefully the work of the Spirit works in good members to, to bring about joy and say, I love being corrected, but then there are people who just, they, they come into the church, and then when they're corrected, they bounce. They react poorly. If you preach the gospel right, it will always go against the will of the flesh, 
It will always go against the will of the devil. It will always go against the will of the world. People will inevitably hate you for standing for God's truth. And a good leader knows that and expects that and kind of gauges that and then walks with courage straight into it. Verses three and five give you another quality of leaders, which just says that their leaders are trustworthy. Specifically, trustworthy in doctrine, in honesty, in ambition, and in wealth. They're trustworthy. It means that they don't speak from error or deceitful intent or impurity, right? So their intentions are pure. They have good theology. They have good intentions. They are honest. They act by spirit and truth. That's sincerity and accuracy, right? That's, that's what he's talking about there. And, and that's, by the way, um, when you take spirit and truth or when you just take sincerity and accuracy or when you talk about uh, honesty and, or sincerity and doctrine, if you just kind of talk about this, uh, this is how you know when a sermon is, is good. It's not whether or not you liked it or if it was interesting and, and entertaining, or if you walked away emotionally moved. Don't, don't use those kind of gauges. That's what you use to gauge a movie or a television show, right? How do you know a sermon's good? Well, first, is it accurate? Start there, right? Is it sound doctrine? Is it accurate? Is that what the Bible is actually saying? And then second, did the person who's, who's preaching it mean it? Did it matter to the person who's actually speaking it to you? Because an unbeliever can come up and just read off a manuscript and, and tell you, tell you uh, what was written. But a sermon is good when, when there's a movement of the Spirit going on, the Holy Spirit going on. That means that it'll be spirit and truth. There's a sincerity and an accuracy to it. Leaders are trustworthy this way. Good leaders don't flatter to try to trick you into liking them or to get you to do stuff for them. Good leaders aren't greedy. You should have every confidence in your leaders that they steward their money well, honestly, generously, wisely. Leaders are trustworthy. And if you feel like you can't trust a leader, that leader needs to be spoken to. You should sit down and talk about why. Kind of figure it out. Maybe the leader's out of line or maybe you don't know the leader well enough. But hopefully the leader has a public enough life so that he stands above reproach. Verse four gives you another quality of leaders, which is that leaders seek to please God instead of pleasing people. A people pleaser will compromise his principles in order to protect his relationships and his reputation. Right, his, his relationships and his reputation will be more important than his principles. But someone who's, uh, who's pleasing God, a good leader, will keep to biblical principle, even if it means that you have to lose some reputation or if you gotta upset certain relationships. You keep to your principles, you, you keep to the instruction of God, knowing that if you do that, people might hate you. Verse seven gives you another quality of good leaders, which is that they're caretakers, like mothers. The Apostle Paul uses mothers as an example. They care about your growth, about your development, they take seriously your pain, your struggles, your trauma, your needs, right? They don't dismiss it. They don't say, just get over it. They don't say, I don't care or I don't get it. They don't act like it's nothing, but they, they, they sit and they connect to you. And they try to, to understand where you're at. And they try to take care of you. They, they, they are caretakers like mothers, nursing infants, right? When an infant runs and falls down, and starts crying, and you see that there's, there's no broken bones, there's no broken skin. You know, a, a, a good mother will go over there and still take care of the child, not like stand there and laugh. Right? She'll go over there and take care of her child because the child is crying. And it's, it's, you know, she's not sitting there trying to reason with the kid like it's not a big deal. Right? She goes, she tends to him. They're gentle, they meet you where you're at. If you're a new believer, then a good leader will, will come with you at a with certain degree of patience. If you're a veteran believer, the leader will come to you with a certain degree of firmness. There's a measured approach knowing that spiritual infants cannot be regarded and treated the same way as spiritual elders. But you come as a, a nursing mother, a caretaking. 
Verses nine and 10 give you another quality of leaders that say that uh, the leaders serve the church. They don't try to get the church to serve the leader, right? The leader is the most active servant, the exemplary servant. They teach, they exhort, they encourage, and they charge. They do all of that stuff. But the point of their leadership is to get everyone to trust and obey Jesus Christ, not to pamper and to boost the ego of the leader. That can only be done by living holy and righteous and blameless without corruption, hypocrisy, selfish ambition, not to have any angle where I'm, I'm in it for myself. I'm in it for the recognition. I'm in it so people know I'm good. I'm in it so people know I'm spiritual. They don't do any of that stuff. They're in it to serve the body. And there's a rejoicing in the spirit when the body is built up. That's all that matters. Verses 11 and 12 give you another quality of good leaders, which is that they're like mentors, like fathers that apprentice their sons. Fathers in, uh, in this particular time would apprentice their sons. A son would always learn the father's trade. And so fathers were known as teachers, guides, mentors, right? They would, they would show you the way. They'd, they'd charge you on how to do something and how to do it right and warn you against doing it wrong. That's what they would do. They would be a teacher and a guide. They'd show you how to carry out your craft, to walk in a manner worthy. And that's what a good leader does, to, to charge you as, as followers of Jesus to walk in a manner that's worthy of God. They lay out a clear path, they give warning, stern rebukes, but are always cheering for your correction and your restoration. They're always looking to see you become better. Now by now, you should have a pretty decent list of qualities that are true of, of, of leaders. This should be piling up a little bit. And I wanna just take a, a moment to say that, that uh, I say with, with full sincerity and conviction that I, I do believe that these qualities are true of our church. Now, I have to remove myself from the example pool because I know I'm standing up here and if I'm like, the leadership is awesome and I'm talking about me, that's not gonna help, right? So just. Take me out of, the, uh, out of the running here, and we just talk about the other leaders of the church. And I do believe that these are, these are people who live by the gospel and are, are people that you ought to imitate. If my son became just like one of these leaders, I would be thrilled. I say that with full honesty, sincerity, and conviction. And... And it's not just, uh, you know, our, our church is led by overseers, but I'm not just talking about overseers because next month we're appointing seven deacons in our ministry. It'll be the first time we've appointed deacons, and I believe these qualities to be true of the deacons as well. I stand by it that when we put people in leadership, uh, it's because I'm convinced that if my son became like one of these people, I would be thrilled. I believe the gospel is resident in their hearts and resonant in their lives. It's consistent with the things you find in 1 Timothy 3 about overseers and deacons and leaders of the church throughout all the different epistles. And I think that when you, when you look at lists like this and you ask, are the leaders of our church living by this? I rest with a uh, with peace in my heart saying yes. I believe that to be true. Let's look again uh, at verse 13, and not again, let's look then at verse 13 and switch to talking about members again. It says in verse 13 through 16, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it, what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. Now, let's take uh, two more qualities here for members. Verse 13 says that members accept the word of the Lord as the word of the Lord not as the word of men. It means that there's an accountability, right? They don't just blindly follow leaders. It's not blind devotion. It's not that. There's a, there's a discernment that takes place, and they listen to what they hear, and they go, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. I believe it, and so I say amen. It's the word of the Lord. 
right? And there's, there's, there has to be a discernment where they can distinguish between the word of man and the word of the Lord. And God is, uh, uh, God is, is, is glorified and worshiped when, when his people can hear his voice, his sheep know the voice of the shepherd. There's always potential for leaders to lead poorly, either on purpose or on accident. Leaders aren't, aren't perfect. They're, you know, they, they mess up too, which is why they have to model confession and repentance. They have to model that. And so that means that there are times when leaders might make calls that you, you feel like, oh, that wasn't the Lord. No, that was something else going on. Members have to discern that. And when they feel like that uh, a leadership call is out of line to go and lovingly talk about it and say, like, is this, is this really what God would want? It's not blind devotion. There's an accountability to it. Members follow when they know that it's God who speaks, not men. Now, people got all sorts of opinions on like, uh, you know, how, how loyal you should be to your church leader. If your pastor or your Bible study teacher or something left the church and you followed him, would that be okay and stuff? And like, look, wherever you go, chase God. Okay, that's, that's the, the easy way to, to put it. If, if, if you think following and, and doing the work over there with the person that, that uh, you've been learning under, if that's gonna help you chase God, pursue God, grow in the Lord, awesome, do it. If you think staying here and, and doing the work here, you know, maybe a, a church sends off a plant like we got sent off, we planted, but then there are people that stayed and they did the good work there. Wherever you go, chase God, right? Don't, don't get caught up on like whether or not you're allowed to follow a leader or something like that. Like you're, you're following God and if you feel like you can do that better over here or over there, then go there. Verse 14 says that members are willing to suffer to follow Jesus. Suffer to follow Jesus. Now, remember, Jesus was persecuted and killed. That's, that's a pretty good model for what to expect. Persecuted and killed. Followers of Jesus have to be willing to follow him even in that if he calls. And that is a hard sell these days because a lot of churches can't even get their members to suffer sleeping on time and waking up on time. A lot of churches have trouble getting their members to suffer welcoming people or serving the church or giving offering or reading the Bible or praying or going to, uh, to small group to have confession and, and accountability and prayer. It's, it's hard. People today are not willing to suffer for Jesus even though they know full well theologically that Jesus suffered and died for them. How many people would still go to church if they knew that going to church would invite persecution intensely and immediately. How many people would still go to church? Well, that's what the Thessalonians did. They knew going to church was gonna invite persecution. They suffered for it. The Jewish believers in the Thessalonian church, they suffered because of the Jews. And then the Gentile believers, they also suffered from Gentile rulers because they weren't worshiping Caesar. But it's not for nothing. Persecution comes against the church, and you, you might suffer persecution, but persecutors don't win. Those who persecute, oppress, or otherwise victimize God's people answer for it. Notice how verse 15, at the, you know, the end of this little uh, paragraph, it says, wrath has come upon them at last. Right? Do you remember what it said about a good church? We wait for Jesus good members, they wait for Jesus who saves us from the coming wrath, right? There's no wrath for God's people, but for those who oppose God's people, for those that victimize God's people, for those that send people to hell, there's wrath. At last, wrath has come upon them, right? Now, technically, Paul is speaking in the past tense as though wrath has already happened, but he's using that as an expression. You know, like when you're studying for a test and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm unprepared. I'm so dead. And you're speaking in the past tense for something that's going to happen in the future, right? I'm dead. I'm, uh, I failed. It's over, right? I'm, uh, I'm done. I'm finished. When you speak like that, you're speaking in the past tense because of the certainty of the future event. That's what Paul's doing here. I want you to understand, okay? Because the, the persecutors are not even dead yet. They're not in hell yet. So wrath has not actually come upon them yet in the technical sense. But it is absolutely certain. And so he says wrath has come upon them at last, right? It is now absolutely clear that Jesus has shown up and he said that Israel is wayward. 
apostate. It's, it's, it's way off course. The, the covenant people of God have turned the Old Testament into something it's not supposed to be. They've taken the law and venerated it to this other position that it's not supposed to be. They've turned it into a ladder of righteousness that you can earn your way to heaven. And that's not it. And they are doomed if they don't turn to the Savior. It is officially declared by Jesus that Jerusalem will be torn down, not one, one stone left upon another. Has it happened yet? No, at that time it hadn't happened yet. But it was so certain that he's like, wrath has come upon them at last. It's, it's like we finally know for sure that the system over there is broken and only Jesus saves. National Israel was doomed. Even the, the way of the world is doomed. Uh, only those who turn to Jesus, they are the ones who are saved from the coming wrath. For everyone else, wrath has come upon them. Well, we kind of wind down to the, the end here, and we, we're getting to leaders again in chapter 2, verse 17, all the way through chapter 3, verse 5. And Paul changes gears again, and he talks about himself and Silas and Timothy. This is what he says in chapter 2, verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person and not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown or of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Chapter three. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent you to learn about your faith for fear that, for a fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Now, there are two qualities to just tie up your list on good leadership. The first one is uh, that good leaders love their people. Good leaders genuinely love their people. They celebrate their salvation and growth. Their congregation is their hope and joy and crown of boasting before Jesus. They wanna be with them, they wanna help them, they love to push these people into the arms of Jesus. That is a sign of good leadership. It's not, it's not good to see a church where the leaders find the people irritating, stupid, where they get frustrated with their people. There has to be a love, a genuine care for their people. And the last quality is that leaders know that Satan opposes the gospel. The, the leaders are aware of the enemy. The enemy, the enemy's forces, Satan and demons, right? Which Satan is a demon. Satan is not the opposite of God. He's just, he's an angel that's fallen. Just like a bunch of other angels and he happens to lead the fallen angels. So he, we talk about him by name. But leaders know that Satan opposes the gospel. Now, oftentimes you'll meet someone uh, and they think that whatever happens in life is what God wanted for them. Right? Like, oh, I didn't get into this school so God clearly doesn't want me to go there. I didn't get this job so God doesn't want me to have it. You know, uh, someone I know got sick and we, we prayed for them to get healed, but they didn't get healed, so God didn't want them to get healed. We wanted them to be sick. And it's just kind of weird that they think that everything that happens, like God wants it to happen. Like God wanted Adam and Eve to eat the, the fruit of knowledge of good and evil. God wants murderers to murder. You know, like that, that's, not, that's not good theology, right? If you, if you just watch the, uh, the apostles, they know that Satan is real and they know that Satan actually moves to hinder the work of God and to hurt, to do damage, to destroy. The Apostle Paul wanted to go to Thessalonica. It doesn't say God opposed him, it said Satan opposed him. Satan hindered him, and so Paul couldn't go. He didn't go, oh, I wanted to come to you, but you know, God didn't want me to. He didn't say that, he said Satan hindered me. The enemy did, 
right? There's an enemy that opposes the work of God. So do not retroactively pretend that everything happens is what God wanted to happen. It is what God might have permitted to happen, sure. He didn't stop it, right? But that doesn't mean that that is what he wants. He wants everyone to be saved. He wants everyone to repent. He wants everyone to worship. But the enemy comes in and does his work. Satan is real. Demons are real. Supernatural enemy forces are real. And the good leader doesn't assume that everything that happens must be what God wanted. That's not good theology. That's why we wage war against unseen enemies. When you think everything that happens is what God wanted, then it, it uh, breeds a certain passivity to your life. You go, like, ah, it doesn't matter. God will just do what he wants. You know, whatever happens is what God wanted. And so there's not an active evangelism. There's not a, a missionary effort. There's not a, a, a fight against the unseen forces. There's not fervent prayer. There isn't an enthusiasm to lift others up in intercession. And you miss out on why Jesus tells us to pray to God to deliver us from all evil, to deliver us from the evil one. But a good leader knows that Satan opposes the gospel. Verses 6 to, to 10 give us, give us a, a, final, uh, a final quality of good members. Verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Uh, if you notice again, he's just, he's pouring out how much he loves these people and how, how much uh, he wants to see them. And the final quality for members that he talks about here is members love their leaders. Right, you see it right there, verse six. Right, there's good news of their faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and you long to see us just like we long to see you, right? Members love their leaders. They appreciate the people who raised them in faith and love, and they long to see them. It's a very different feeling than, uh, you know, you're hanging out with your friends, and if the, if the pastor or your small group leader or your Bible study teacher shows up, then you're like, ah, great, what a drag, right? Can't talk about what I wanna talk about now can't drink what I want to drink, you know, can't do what I want to do. Like, if you see your leader as a buzzkill, you're probably going after the wrong buzz. A good member loves their leaders because their leaders point them where? To Jesus. Uh, I'm assuming then that it's a good leader, you know, and a good member is not going to love a bad leader. Bad leader, bad leader, right? So, I mean, you should love them to try to correct them, but... When you have a good leader, there should be a love inside, something that just goes like, this is the gospel moving in my heart. This person helped teach that to me, an aspect of it. And you have many leaders in your lives, right? The people that raised you if, you, if you've gone to church all your life, you have your, your elementary leaders and stuff, your, your youth group leaders, and then your college leaders. You have lots of leaders, and so for all of them, anyone who's, uh, who's been a part of the journey of faith for you, there should be a, a, a love and a longing for them. Well, let me just uh, kind of tie this up here. You got two lists. You have qualities of good leaders and you have qualities of good members. Ask yourself, do the qualities of a good member describe you? Do you receive the word even during much affliction with joy? Do you evangelize sounding forth the word? Did you turn away from the idols that you used to worship, from the sins that you used to pursue? Do you serve the living and true God? Do you wait eagerly for the return of Jesus? Do you accept the word of God over the word of men, over the word of culture, over the word of society? Are you willing to suffer to follow Jesus? And do you love your leaders? And I suppose that's a moment where you can also inspect the other list and ask if these qualities describe the leaders at your church. 
But it should come as no surprise to you that I challenge you not to think that that list applies just to them, but still also to you. Are you not called to imitate good leadership? Imitate your leaders. Imitate Jesus, which means everything that's true of good leaders, imitate that. Is that list true of you? Do you constantly pray for your church? Do you deliver the gospel, not just with words, but by the way that you live, obediently by the power of the Holy Spirit with full conviction? Are you willing to suffer to spread the gospel? Are you trustworthy in your doctrine, in your honesty, in your relationships, in your ambition, with your wealth? Do you seek to please God rather than pleasing people? Do you take care of other members with gentleness and care, connecting even with their moments of pain and hurt? Do you live to serve the church or do you see the church being around to serve you? Do you mentor other members with clear and firm instruction, pointing them in the right direction? Do you love your church? Do you understand that Satan will always try to work against you? Measure these things. Look at the leaders here and, and the members here. If you're a visitor, stick around long enough to get a good gauge on that, on whether or not the leaders make it on this list. And if the members make it on this list, is this a good church? And of course, look at yourself. Examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourself. Do you make this a good church? That is probably the most operative question. You can ask, is this a good church? Now, if you're a member here, the best question to ask is, is this a good church because of you? Or is this a good church despite you? Do you help make this a good church? If you do, then we know that we, the, you know, the, the members and the leaders here, we know that we give thanks to God always for this church for this place, constantly mentioning this church in our prayers. But if, if you don't make this a good church, then, then the call is to turn from your idols and instead serve the living and true God and wait eagerly for the Son. He is, after all, the centerpiece of the gospel. He's the one who paid for your sin, the one who gave you his righteousness. He's the one who leads you to glory. Let me tie it up with uh, these last few verses the last three verses of chapter three, which is also my prayer, along with the, the other leaders of this church, it's our prayer for you, and hopefully it's your prayer for everyone here too. Chapter three, verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. I believe this is a good church. Praise God that for every good church, though there comes affliction and persecution from the world, there is no condemnation for the people of God because Christ delivers us from the wrath to come and leads us instead into future glory. As members and leaders, as a church, we put our hope in him and we eagerly await the return of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray. Lord, you know my heart and you know whether or not what I'm saying up here is sincere. I hope, Lord, that that everyone here agrees that there's something very special going on here. I look around and I see an incredible people 
where when visitors come, there's a, a felt sense of, of unity, of sound doctrine, of true fellowship. I rejoice, Lord, that in our discipleship groups, real confession can take place, real prayer, real accountability. I love the fact, Lord, that we don't have to pretend to be holy. We just come and say, we need a savior, and this is where and why. I love our leaders. I love seeing men and women who are real examples of what it looks like to be pursuing Jesus in a way that transforms their lives. And I'm so glad, Lord, to see a, members, a membership of this body that exemplifies Christian living. We're not perfect, we really aren't. And we're still figuring out so much and we don't have everything all together, but we are moving in a good direction. We, we hear your word and it corrects us and we receive it with joy. And slowly it tilts our lives bit by bit, week by week, back to you. So we pray, God, that you'd be glorified in our midst and that our church would grow, that visitors would see what's taking place here and would commit, and by committing would not just come to consume all that the church has to offer, but to contribute, that this would be a good church because of them too. Bless us, Lord, with a, a strong understanding of the gospel and a true desire to live by it. All this we pray for Christ's glory in his name. Amen.